Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the Sabbath day and the privilege that we have to be here worshiping together. Father, we know that you're in our presence and you have invited us actually into your presence on this Sabbath day. We pray, Lord, that that time would be well spent, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you have to tell us today. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you very much. I want to start out by talking a little bit about the ultimate purpose and the whole idea even behind this. Uh, I, I feel really excited and privileged to be here and to be a part of this uh, because, as I mentioned in our brief description of seminars last night, the 19, rather the 18 to 29-year-old age group is the missingest group in the church today, and that's not just in the Adventist church today. According to the Barner Research Group, teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans. Now listen carefully. Teenagers are among the most religiously active Americans. You take all Americans and you look at the Christian experience, and the most active Christians are the teenagers. Twenty-somethings are the least active. So you go from the teen years to being the most active, and then you get into the 20-somethings, and you're the least active. And as I mentioned, the ages of 18 to 29 are, quote, the black hole of church attendance. So what happens between the teen years and, and the 20s? And just so that we don't think it begins in college, because we could say, well, it's college does it to them. A professor at the Princeton Theological Seminary named Kenda Creasy Dean wrote a book called The Almost Christian. It was based on a study that she did. One summer, she interviewed 3,300 teens between the ages of 13 and 17 about their faith, and she describes it as one of the most depressing summers of her life. She says they have a lot to say, they can talk about money, sex, and their family relationships with nuance. But when they got to the subject of faith, they were indifferent and inarticulate. Okay, so this is the active population, the teen group, and she surveyed these 3,300 teens, and some people said, well, you know, maybe they're shy, and that's why you're finding the result. No, 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 she says they're not shy. They can talk about all kinds of things until you get to spirituality, and then they seem to be indifferent. She concluded that more American teenagers are embracing what she calls moralistic therapeutic deism. I like that term. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism, that's the God I'm worshiping. Moralistic, you know, it's, I've got some moral values tied in there. Therapeutic, God does things for me. She says that more American teenagers are embracing what she called moralistic therapeutic deism, a watered-down faith that portrays God as a divine therapist whose chief goal is to boost people's self-esteem. That's what Dean said in her book, The Almost Christian. She goes on to argue that many parents and pastors are unwittingly passing on this self-serving strain of Christianity. She says this imposter faith is one reason teenagers abandon churches. If teenagers lack an articulate faith, she said, it may be because the faith we show them is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. It's too, too spineless, too empty, too accommodating to the world around us. Interesting study. In another book written by David Kinneman, now he's the president of Barna Research Group, he wrote a book called You Lost Me, looking at this generation, this black hole of 18 to 29-year-olds. And he commented in his book, he says, the problem that we're seeing arises from the inadequacy of preparing young Christians for life beyond youth group. The dropout problem is at its core a faith development problem to use religious language, it's a disciple-making problem. And I agree with Kinnaman 100%. There's a problem 
in, in the church today in understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And that lack of understanding has taken out the purpose of Christianity. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning as we look at the ultimate purpose. I want to uh, ask you the question, first of all, I mean, this is a Real commonplace question, and I think everybody would have a pretty straightforward answer with this. What is a disciple? If you were to say, and I, and I, don't, even want to, I don't even want to stay within the confines of Christianity. If I throw the word disciple out there, what is, what is a disciple? Follower. Most people would say a follower. Somebody who follows somebody with the purpose of being like them, emulating that somebody, right? How many of you would connect with that definition of discipleship? Yeah, disciple's a follower, okay? And, of course, a Christian is going to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. Now, let me ask a follow-up question. Is there a difference between a disciple and a Christian? It's not a, it's not a trick question. Is there a difference between a disciple and a Christian? I'm getting a little bit of Babylon out here, huh? Some yeses and some noes and some hmm... Let me ask it this way. Should there be a difference between a disciple and a Christian? What are, we, what are we saying when we say, oh yeah, there's a difference between a disciple and a Christian? A disciple is an active Christian. Right? I mean, if somebody was going to say there's a difference, isn't that kind of the difference? That's, that's, that's what I assume when I've talked to people when in conversations. I don't need to assume it, I should say. I've had people, when I have this conversation with people, and they elaborate a little bit, Oh, yeah, well, the Christian is a believer, and then the disciple, they're, they're a believer who actually gets out and does something. Does the Scripture support that? Go to the book of Acts with me. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. We're going to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 11, we're going to verse 26, just to give you a little bit of background, great things were happening in the early church, among the lay people, that is, the, the church members, not the pastors, not the priests, the leaders, the apostles, the church members in Antioch, the church was just going gangbusters in Antioch, I mean, the church was growing by leaps and bounds, so much so that word went back to Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem decided they're going to send Barnabas out to check it out. So Barnabas goes to Antioch, and Barnabas gets to Antioch, and whoa, he's blown away by what's happening there. So then Barnabas call, goes out and finds Paul. And he says, you've got to come and check this out. And that's what we're seeing. He finds Paul, and it says in verse 26, Acts 11:26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and notice, the disciples, the who? The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Is there a, disciple, is there a difference between a disciple and a Christian? Not according to the Bible. They were the same group. Are you following that? The disciples were first called Christians. Here's, the, here's these people, all they're doing is talking about Christ. Is Christ this, and Christ that, and and, and, and they're, the, the people who heard them said, you guys are a bunch of Christians. And the name stuck. No biblical distinction between a disciple and a Christian. Every Christian is a disciple of Christ. Let's see that again in the book of John. Let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 26. John 12 and verse 26. Notice the words of Jesus here. John 12 and verse 26, it says here, If anyone serves me, who would that be? A Christian, right? If anyone serves me, he says, let him follow me. What's that? Anytime you read that terminology in connection with the ministry of Jesus, you're talking about discipleship. That's discipleship language. Follow me, he says. Be my disciple. He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. You can't serve him and not follow him. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. Are you following so far? No, no pun intended. I hope you're following. 
We are disciples of Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So let's talk about this. There's no difference between a Christian and a disciple. So we're all disciples. We're all called to discipleship. What is a disciple? Incidentally, the Great Commission, what does the Great Commission tell us? Go make disciples. What is a disciple? Now, there's a lot we could look at. We're just going to look at a couple. There's a couple things I want to look at with you this morning as far as disciples go. Uh, First of all, I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. I want to look this morning with you at the qualities of a disciple, the characteristics of a disciple. Uh, Luke chapter 5, and this is where Peter goes out on the boat with Jesus. Jesus tells him to throw the net in the water. It's in the middle of the day. Peter says, you don't catch fish in the day with nets, but he throws the net out anyway, and lo and behold, the net is instantly filled with fish, and Peter falls down at the feet of Jesus, and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, and Jesus said, from now on, you're going to catch men. And notice what it says. Luke chapter 5 and verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they what? They forsook all and followed him. I want you to notice a characteristic here of a disciple. A disciple is willing to forsake all. Now, I don't believe this means that they, they, they you know, they had families from what we understand in Scripture. I don't believe that they... They sold their homes and and walked around with knapsacks everywhere. But I do believe, one thing we do know is they left their occupations. And and you have a group of fishermen here. It doesn't name who all is with Peter, but it names a handful of them. You've got James and John. You've got the partners of Simon. Likely his brother Andrew was there. Now we go on in the chapter. We're still in chapter 5. And we come by the, the tax collection booth of Levi Matthew, verse 27. It says, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him what? Follow me. He's calling him to what? To be a disciple. Discipleship, right? Follow me. And it says in verse 28, So he left all. You see that? He left all, rose up, and followed him. And incidentally, you may remember Luke 14, where Jesus says, if any man will come after me, oh, that's not the one, in Luke 14, where Jesus says, if anyone is not willing to forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. You remember that text? All right. Listen, a disciple is willing to forsake all. Now again, I don't think that, that the Bible doesn't give us indication that they, they sold all their possessions and lived in boxes, but it does say they left their occupations. And incidentally, in the book Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that they had friends dependent upon them for support. And let me make something clear to you this morning. When you choose to become a true disciple of Christ, inevitably somebody in your life is going to call you be irresponsible for doing it. I don't think they were too pleased. I'm sure people said, what are you guys doing? Quitting your jobs and this is so irresponsible. I'm not telling everybody to go quit jobs or quit this or quit that. I'm simply just making the point this morning that biblically, discipleship means we're willing to lay anything aside for Christ. Are you with me so far? Are you with me so far? All right. I hear you breathing out there. These lights, I can't necessarily see. They kind of glare, but... Let's go to the next passage this morning that I want to look at, and this is also in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to Luke 9. Luke 9, and we're going to verse 23. This is a very familiar passage. Luke 9 and verse 23, the Bible says here, Then he, this is Jesus, said to them all, If what? Anyone, any man in the King James, I'm reading the New King James this morning, anyone desires to what? Come after me. What's that talking about? Follow me, discipleship, right? You're going to be my disciple. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And uh, the Gospel of Luke brings that out that, that uh, some of the other Gospel writers don't. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, I want to think through this a little bit. Again, discipleship language. You want to be a disciple of Christ? This is what Jesus says. If anyone's going to follow me, this is what needs to happen. You've got to be willing to deny yourself. Now, to deny yourself means to say what to yourself? Say no to yourself. There are certain things when you choose to be a follower of Christ that you say no to. And typically, probably thinking through it this morning, we say, oh, I know what that is, Pastor. When we choose to follow Christ, we've got to say no to drinking certain things and hanging out with certain people and, and listening to certain things and watching certain things. And, and we, we, you know, we deny ourselves of those things. And then, you know, for example, I choose to give my life to Jesus and I'm going to become a vegetarian. And then I bear my cross. That means that, that I start to endure persecution for my vegetarianism. For example, I used to work in, before I ever became a minister, I was in the construction field and I would go out and I would be working these jobs with all these, you know, construction guys and I became a vegetarian. Construction guys love that. We would sit around and eat lunch together and it was on more than one occasion that one of the guys would go out in the yard and fill a bag full of leaves and twigs and come in and say, hey, I brought you some lunch. Ha, <laughs> ha, yeah. So, and I endured persecution. I bore my cross, the reproach. Sometimes when we think of taking, denying yourself and taking up your cross, we think of the, you know, some of that reproach that we bear as a, as a follower of Jesus for some of the decisions we make, and that's certainly an application. But I want to go a little deeper than that. This idea of denying yourself and taking up your cross. First of all, where does a person take a cross? If you were living in Jesus' day, where did you see somebody with a cross? Were they walking through the mall with a cross? No, they were one place they were going with a cross. They were going to their own death, unless they were carrying it for somebody else. It was to somebody's death. And when Jesus says, your cross, he makes it very clear that you are going to your death when you follow him. If anyone wants to follow me, this is what he says. You've got to say no to yourself, and you're going to your death. Now, let me ask it this way. What did it mean for Jesus to take his cross? Because, you know, we're disciples. We're following, and, and we're not doing anything that he hasn't done. He's leading, and he says, if you're going to come after me, you've got to do what I did. Take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, I mentioned that when oftentimes we think about Christianity, we think about the bad things that we had to give up to follow Jesus. But let's think of it this way for a minute. What bad things did Jesus give up? Hmm. What did Jesus give up? Everything. Was any of it bad? No. Jesus left glory, left all the perfection of heaven, all the glory, all the adoration of heaven, and he came down to this dark world to save you and me. Jesus didn't give up bad things so he could be saved. He gave up good things so others could be saved. Right? For Jesus, taking up his cross meant laying down his life for the salvation of others. It means the same for every follower of Jesus. Being willing to lay aside your life, your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions for the salvation of others. That's biblical discipleship. Are you with me so far? Friends, the life of the Christian must be invested with the same thing that the life of Christ was invested with, and that is a passion to be willing to give all for the salvation of others. That's Christianity. I'm going to share with you a statement from the book Education. And I'm going to give a plug here. In the book Education, and if you've heard me speak any time in the last couple of years, I give this plug everywhere I go. This is one of the most funny. If I only wish when I was a young adult I had known about this chapter and I could have read it. In the book Education, chapter 31, you don't have to read the whole book. I'd encourage you to read the whole book. But if you only read one chapter, chapter 31, The Life Work. The life work. At this age, young people, and it's not only at this age, are saying, what does God want for my life? What 
is the plan for my life? What is the purpose for my life? God tells us in the life work. And in that chapter, education page 262, it says the following. Success in any line, that means any occupation you're going to find yourself in, demands a definite aim. He who would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. You don't want to waste your time on an unworthy aim. Listen carefully. Such an aim is set before the youth today. You want to know what the aim is? This is the worthy aim that's set before the youth of today. Listen carefully. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. Isn't that what we just read in, about discipleship? Isn't that, in essence, what the Scripture's telling us a disciple is? Now, don't confuse what I'm saying here. Some people hear that and they say, oh, I guess we're all supposed to go and leave whatever we were doing and go into professional ministry. No, that's not true. The fact is that God has called His people to be missionaries anywhere they find themselves, in any occupation they find themselves. We're at Southern Adventist University. Does anybody know what it used to be called? Southern Missionary College. Andrews University. Anybody know what it used to be called? Emmanuel Missionary College. We have Washington Missionary College. Oh, that's back when the only thing people did is they came to college to be ministers, right? No. No, they came to do anything and everything that you're doing, pretty much, but the idea being communicated that is still being communicated at least intended to by our schools, is that whatever occupation you find yourself in, you are called to be a missionary for Christ. That's your first occupation. That's what this statement is bringing out. The heaven-appointed purpose. What does that mean? That means this is God's purpose that he's appointed to you and to me. The noblest purpose that can appeal to any human being, the giving of the gospel to the world in this generation. It opens a field of effort to everyone whose heart Christ has touched. Everyone. It's discipleship. And I believe that one of the greatest challenges among this black hole of attendance today is the loss of that purpose in their understanding. And I want to show it to you from Scripture. Let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 12. And there's a fascinating parable here in Matthew 12. Just a few little verses, but packed full of meaning. Matthew 12, verse 43. Matthew 12 and verse 43. The Bible says here, when an unclean spirit goes out of a what? Out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my, my house. What was his house? It was a man. I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is what? It's worse than the first. Let's process that for a minute. An evil spirit goes out of a man. And, and I want to clarify something. You know, we talk about, oh, an evil spirit. This is a demon-possessed person. The Bible's very plain that there are only two masters you can serve. You can serve Christ, you serve the enemy. And listen to me carefully. If you have not yet made your choice for Christ, you have defaulted to the other guy. There's no riding the fence. It's not, well, I haven't chosen, I haven't decided yet. Yeah, you've chosen not to decide, and that means your choice has been for the enemy by default. That's the reality of it. The enemy has control over anybody who hasn't chosen Christ to have control over them. And so he said, oh, demon, this spirit, evil spirit's in the man. He's a demon-possessed man. Well, not necessarily the way we would think. There was an evil spirit in the man because it left the man. Now, when does an evil spirit leave a man? When Christ comes in, right? One spirit comes in and kicks the other one out. 
So this is a man that at least at one point had accepted Christ and the evil spirit was told to find another place. We're looking at the life of a Christian here who at one point, again, had accepted Christ into his life, expelled the evil spirit. The evil spirit goes out, looks for places, doesn't find a place, comes back and finds his old house swept. And the the King James Version says garnished, decorated, Everything's put in order. What does a man look like? What does a person look like who's swept in an order? Oh, they've cleaned up their act a little bit. They're, uh, they've gotten rid of some bad habits. They've stopped drinking certain things and carousing and sleeping around and watching things that militate against their spirituality. And they've gotten things out clean things up. They dress up and look nice for church. You see them there in church and they say, happy Sabbath, brother. Right? So your, your uh, outward, the outward appearance has changed. And it should. Does that sound reasonable? A reasonable explanation of a person who's swept in an order? So here comes the evil spirit. He comes back. The, there, there's, there's a form of change there in the life, but there's a problem. What's, what's the problem? The house is empty, right? Nobody, nobody living there. What does that mean? What's missing from inside? Christ is missing. The Holy Spirit is missing from his life. Typically the first answer, it's a right answer. I want to go a little bit further than that. Think about it for a minute. Of course, at one time there was the, the, the Holy Spirit's presence there that expelled the evil spirit, but when, again, he, the evil spirit comes back, there's no presence inside the man. He's not got Christ living inside. He says, oh, the house is empty. I'm going to come back inside. I want to go a little bit further this morning and suggest to you that, let's not talk about necessarily the presence of Christ, but the, the, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but the effect of the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, let's talk about the substance of the man's life. Because what I believe the picture is trying, what Jesus is trying to paint here is a picture of a man who has come into Christianity, and at one time he was invested in the cause, but when the evil spirit comes back and finds him, he still has the trimmings, he still acts outwardly, he has certain of the forms of Christianity, but the substance of Christianity is missing. Again, a disciple is a follower of the master. Question, what was the substance of the life of Christ? What was the substance? I mean, what could you, how could you sum up the life of Jesus? Self-sacrifice for for salvation of others, right? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Would that be a fair summary of the life of Jesus? Sure, I mean, that's his whole life. Listen, his whole life was and still is invested in that. Somebody had asked the question the other night. It was interesting to me, and I understood where they were coming from a little bit, but how do we balance our secular life and our spiritual life? The reality is your whole life should be a spiritual life. That doesn't mean you're walking around with your Bible all the time like this, but it means that the the Spirit of Christ is directing your motives and your thoughts and everything that you do. That was the life of Jesus. Jesus wasn't like, well, I came to church and, hey, church is over. Oh, Oh, sundown is over. What are we doing tonight? That didn't happen in the life of Jesus. His life was imbued with the cause of his father. That's that cause of his own, the salvation of souls. He was invested in that. That was was what he was all about. Every person who is born into the kingdom of God is born with a missionary spirit. Did you know that? It's the spirit of Christ. Christ cannot dwell in a person and that person not have the same burden that Christ had. 
So you have a picture of a person here who has the form of Christianity, but for some reason or the other, the substance of the Christian life is missing. And so what happens? The demon comes back, and he brings in a bunch of other guys and said, hey, let's come in here and party, and it's worse off than the guy was at the beginning. I want to tell you I meet young people all the time who have at one time responded to some call, committed their life to Jesus, but they don't invest themselves in Christian life. Oh, they stop doing certain things. They get certain things out. But listen, friends, Christianity is not about divesting. It's about investing. It's not just about what you get out. You get a bunch of things out of your life and you don't put Christ and his mission in your life. There's a vacuum there. And if that vacuum isn't filled with the mission of Christ, sooner or later it's going to be filled with something else. And you might retain the form of Christianity all the way through it. But the substance will be lacking. And when the substance is lacking and you lack that purpose, that's when you're going to see no purpose for Christianity. And I believe that we have an entire generation that is struggling with that. Why? Ellen White calls it respectable conventionality. Again, from the Life Work, page 264 of Education. She quotes Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. She says, this is Christ's command to his followers. Not that all are called to be ministers or missionaries in the ordinary sense of the term, but all may be workers with him in giving the glad tidings to their fellow men. To all, great or small, learned or ignorant, old or young, the command is given. Now listen carefully. In view of this command, can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality, a life professedly Christian, but lacking his self-sacrifice? Now think that through with me. Respectable conventionality. What's conventional is what's the, 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 the uh, cultural norm. And respectable conventionality, I'm just going to use the term Christian culture. This is where cultural Christians, not to be confused with true Christians, you know you can be a Christian by culture. In other words, you grow up you, you, you grew up in the Adventist church, and, and so you, you have a certain culture that you're aware of. You know all about haystacks and, and Sabbath naps and, and certain things that other people don't know anything about because you grew up in the culture, right? There's a little subculture there, and it goes across the lines of Christians. You grow up, you can grow up with a culture of Christianity. You can know certain things. I mean, it, it's cute, and, and then it's a little bit unsettling in some ways when you work with kids of course I have two kids of my own and when you work with kids in a church and church school and stuff and you ask them the questions you know like uh, even down to the very youngest ones you know you ask them a question like so who you know uh, who do we want to give our hearts to Jesus and you know and they know what to say they say Jesus to everything when they're when they're young they know the answer that they're supposed to say and I'm not saying they're insincere but the point is you can just get programmed to know the right answers and not really have that be a part of your life. Isn't it true? And the problem, one of the big problems with that is you're really, your Christianity really is coming from people's views of things versus the Bible's views of things versus God's views of things. My family, I grew up in the Adventist church. My family left the Adventist church when I was about 14 years old. And the Lord gripped my heart when I was in my mid-20s, about 25 years old. I remember coming back into the church. Now, I had gone to church school, and one of the things that was amazing to me is when I came back into the church, I was not living for Christ at all. I was living for the world. My life was totally absorbed with the world. And I knew coming back into the Christian life things had to change. I didn't have to have a pastor sit down and give me any kind of studies or lectures. I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. I knew what was wrong and what needed to change. I knew what was worldly and needed to go. 
But the most alarming thing to me is when I came back into the church, saw my old friends who I'd gone to church school with, who stayed in for church school, academy, college, and were living just like I was living in the world and thought it was okay. Because that's what everybody else in the church did. Don't be deceived by Christian culture, friends. Do not be deceived by Christian culture. Culture is not Christianity. And the problem here is what Ellen White is speaking of is respectable conventionality. This is what the church says is okay. Hey, this is acceptable in the church. You say, hey, let's go out and witness. Well, not everybody else witnesses. In fact, not many other people witness at all. So why do I have to go? We're going on outreach today. And I'll tell you what it's like as a pastor. I'll preach. I'll preach a sermon. I'll make an appeal. I'll say, the cause of God is languishing for workers. Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest send laborers. How many want to be laborers? Everybody said, amen. You know, we, we all respond. And then I say, this afternoon, we're going to get together for outreach, and about 5% come out. That's Christian culture. Ellen White says, can we possibly educate our sons and daughters? Now, speaking to my generation, can we educate and beyond our sons and daughters to have this life of respectable Christianity, respectable conventionality, this life with a Christian veneer, but a life that is lacking in the spirit of Christianity. Is it, can we do that? I didn't read to you all of that statement. I'm going to read that sentence again. Now listen. In view of this command, the Great Commission, can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality, a life professedly Christian, but lacking his self-sacrifice, a life on which the verdict of him who is the truth must be, I know you not. If we don't have the Spirit of Christ, the missionary spirit, when Jesus comes and meets us where we are, he's going to say, I know you not. How is it that the Bible has a call to discipleship? This is what every disciple is called to do. Be willing to divest yourself of your hopes and ambitions and invest yourself in the cause of God. And yet, So few. Statistically, do you know how many Americans and Christians in North America share their faith? Statistically? Christians in North America, percentage-wise, give me a percentage. How many Christians in North America share their faith on a regular basis? Ooh, 25%. You're optimistic. Come on. Oh, 5%, still optimistic. 1%, a lot closer, 2%. 2%? How is that possible? That 2% of Christians share their faith on a regular basis. I mean, we have the cure to the world's ills, and we're not telling anybody. And we're followers of Christ. We're to be emulating him. A life on which the verdict of him who is the truth must be, I know you not. Thousands are doing this. They think to secure for their children the benefits of the gospel while they deny its spirit. So we have a generation that's lost its purpose. I want to tell you, young people, today, God has a purpose higher and greater for you than any purpose this world could ever give. I was doing a, a team Bible camp in my conference there at our summer camp we had a, for our, our, all of our high schoolers and they sent them up to teen Bible camp and I was talking to the kids about Christian culture and, and, and societal norms and I asked them a few questions of course I told them I assumed I made an assumption that everybody's goal in life is to be happy I think that's a fair assumption whatever choices we make I mean we want to be happy in life that's fair and I said, with that given, I want you to tell me, these are all good Adventist boys and girls going to Adventist school, three things, three goals in your life that you have that will help to make you happy. 
What do you think the first goal was across the board? A good job. Now, there's a follow-up question to that, right? Define a good job. What's a good job? What do you think the answer was? Got to make lots of money. Okay, so the good job that makes lots of money. That was the ambition. That's what's going to make you happy, okay? Now, there were variations, but the top three were a good job, a good education. There's a follow-up question to that. What's a good education? One that gets you a good job. And what's a good job? One that makes you lots of money. What do you think the third one was? Come on. Yeah, relationship. I want to be in a relationship. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting a good job and wanting to be secure. But these were the answers. And then, with regularity, in the list for every one of them was a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus. Now that sounds good on the surface, but let me ask you a question. For, well, I asked them, first of all, when they said a good job, and remember, I'm up there at Team Bible Camp with their schools and teachers. A good job is the one that makes lots of money. I said, so your teacher doesn't have a good job, right? Because anybody knows in education, you're not making lots of money. Any teachers here can say amen to that? You're not in it for money, right? So, so think about this. Now these young people, they were teenagers, they were being honest, but What's motivating that thinking? And where are they getting that from? First of all, those things aren't going to make them happy. And if that's where you're looking, it's not going to make you happy either. Where are they getting that idea from? And, and a relationship with Jesus, what if Jesus were to call them like Peter, James, and John? Young people, what if Jesus were to call you today and say, I want you to go and give your life to missionary service? And you wanted to be a lawyer. I'm going to have some parent upset. So don't tell my kid to quit law school or quit this or quit that. And I'm not saying to quit that, but I'm saying, can Jesus still call people? And if he were to call you, would you say yes? I'm going to tell you this. The Lord Jesus doesn't call anybody into anything that won't give them the highest sense of fulfillment in life. I remember when the Lord called me. I was in college. I, was, I had a good job. I was taking night classes. I had a 4.0 average and a double major in computer programming and accounting. And when the Lord got a hold of my heart, I knew that's not where I needed to be. I, didn't even, I wasn't even totally clear where I needed to be, but I knew God was calling me elsewhere. So I put that behind me. I, I left everything behind. In fact, the last time I was here on the campus of Southern Adventist University is when I had literally gotten rid of all my stuff and started on the road with ministry with some friends. I'm not saying God is going to tell everybody to do that. I'm not saying God's going to call everybody out of school. And sometimes God calls somebody. I've got a church member right now who's out taking a year on missionary service and then he's planned... He plans to come back and finish up his education. But young people, the, the, the work is not going to be finished in this generation until we break out of the cultural expectations and choose to be disciples of Christ. Jesus went on to say, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. A life lived for self and selfish ambition is never a life that's going to be full of joy. It's not going to be. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes with me. I've been reading through the book Ecclesiastes. Amazing. And if you know the background of Ecclesiastes, this is a man who God gave a great gift of wisdom and still he went contrary to God's plan and he tells the story in Ecclesiastes as a warning to any who would come after, especially the youth, as to what not to do with their lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 
Verse 10. Solomon here explains how he pursued all the pleasures of life. He said in verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. A life lived for self. That's why entertainment is so big today, because when you live for self, living a life that's invested in self is so boring that you've got to have constant entertainment so you don't have to think about it. There's no real purpose in it. He goes on in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 7 to say all the labor of a man is for his mouth and yet the soul is not satisfied. In other words, we so often, just like those teenagers, well, I'm going to live and I'm looking for my, my needs and necessities and even my, my wants in this life and that's what I'm going to live for. I'm going to get a good job and good money. I'm going to have a family and a nice house and a white picket fence. The American dream the soul will be empty. Just like that man in Matthew 12. God wants more for you. My young people, God has called you to give you a great purpose, an ultimate purpose in this life. Christ's Object Lessons, page 57, says at the very outset of the Christian life, Every believer should be taught its foundation principles. Listen carefully. The foundational principles of Christianity. He should be taught that he is not merely to be saved by Christ's sacrifice, but that he is to make the life of Christ his life and the character of Christ his character. Let them taste the joy of winning souls for him. In their love and interest for the lost, they will lose sight of self. The pleasures of the world will lose their power to attract and its burdens to dishearten. When? When we are invested in the cause of Christ. When we become true disciples of Christ, the Lord will fill us with his purpose. You know, that book, Education, was published in 1903. That heaven-appointed purpose says giving the gospel to the world in this generation. Young people, that generation has come and gone. And here we are. The gospel could have been given to the world then, and by God's grace, this generation will give it to the world now. If you only take God seriously and ask him, Lord, imbue me, fill me with that sacred, ultimate purpose. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Listen to this statement from the book, Education, same chapter. Many a youth of today growing up as did Daniel in his Judean home, studying God's word and his works and learning the lessons of faithful service will yet stand in legislative assemblies, in halls of justice, or in royal courts as a witness for the king of kings. Some of you are going to stand before the rulers of this earth to bear witness for Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a story of a doctor who had a good practice in a city, a nice home, lots of toys, but he felt empty, so he decided that he wanted to invest some time in missionary service, and he found a small island that needed a mission doctor, and he took two weeks out of the year, and he would go to that island and he would serve. And he felt good about it. And each year he would go, and he'd been doing this for a few years when a new disease showed up on this island. And this man, this doctor, he'd never seen it before, and he checked around, and, and nobody had ever seen it before. And it claimed two lives that year, and he was just really in anguish over the fact that this disease had come in. The island wasn't all that big. But he did his two weeks, and he went home. The next year when he came back, he was astonished at how that disease had ravaged the island. Nearly 300 people had died. And that doctor was beside himself, and he knew something had to be done. And he chose then and there 
But he, he was going to commit his life to finding a cure. And he sold his practice. He sold his toys. He got rid of all of his things. And he went over to that island. He set up a small clinic with a little lab. And he began to work and research and try to help the people the best he could. He invested all of his time and energy. He spent sleepless hours researching. And several years later, he was able to find the cure for the disease. The only problem was he himself, because of his compromised immune system and his time with the natives, had succumbed to the disease, the disease himself to the point where there was nothing he could do for his own situation. But he had the cure. He only needed somebody to be able to administer it. He called a colleague of his and he said, listen, you've got to come over and help these islanders. You've got to come over and help them out. Uh, I'm not going to make it, but I'm trusting you. He says, will you promise me? He said, I'll promise. That doctor passed away, and about that time, that colleague got an offer at a big hospital as an administrator with all the perks. And he took it. And he comforted himself that he was still helping people because, after all, I mean, he's still working with the hospital, but the reality is he never really did like that missionary service working among those natives. And he never did go. Friends, that's the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ has the cure, and he only needs it to be given out. And who's he called but you and me, this generation? Go ye therefore, he says, preach the gospel to every creature. How are you going to respond to that call today? The Lord Jesus is calling you for such a time as this. And I want to appeal to you this morning, as you're listening to the message, and as you're contemplating these words and the calling of Christ on your life, how many of you want to respond with the words of Isaiah, Lord, here I am, send me? Is that your desire today? If it is, stand with me this morning. Here I am, Lord, send me. I will go for you. And let's pray to the Lord for that ultimate purpose. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of fellowship with you in service. Oh Lord, forgive us for the respectable conventionality that has gripped us too long and reignite us with that flame of the Holy Spirit's fire and that passion for mission, for the lost. Fill our lives with the same purpose your life was filled with. Fill these young people, Father, and bring this gospel work to a close in this generation. We ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.